Happy New Year. I know that, uh, uh, let me just ask real quick, how many of you guys are tired? I, this two weeks has been long. I am, I am ready for normal. Um, and I hope that you are as well, and uh, I'm glad you're here, and if you're kicking off a resolution to get back to church more often than, uh, than you did last year, thanks for uh, starting with us this morning. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, New Year's is always a time of fresh starts. It's kind of funny, because really every day that we have is a fresh start, but we tend to focus on New Year's for whatever reason. We want to lose weight. We want to go on a diet. We want to make change. We want to go to the gym more often. We want to have a better relationship with other people or with God. We have this tendency to to take this time to do it. Now, how many resolutions do you think actually get completed? If, if you were to take a percentage guess of the percentage of people who make resolutions who actually complete it, what do you think that number is? A little higher. Eight is it? Who said eight? I heard an eight back there somewhere. Oh, 18. Okay, sorry. Well, yeah, you said eight? Okay, good job, Corey. I was going to give away that Cowboys popcorn bucket back there, the winner of it. But uh, so if you guys want a Cowboys popcorn bucket, I'm pretty sure that, that Corey will be willing to give that to you. So you just need to talk to him at the end since he just won it. But um, yeah, 8%. 8% of resolutions that are made actually come to fruition. Why do you think that is? What's the, what's the reason behind not completing a resolution? Setting one. That, that, if you set one, you're going to fail. So just don't do it. That, that, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, what I really think it is, what I think it boils down to, is people don't truly count the cost. The cost is going to come with setting a resolution because everything we do comes at a price. And resolutions are no different than that. Let's just take a couple of the, the top six resolutions, top five resolutions, and, and look at them and just... For a second, think about the cost that's involved. Number one resolution for most people is to lose weight. What's the, what's the cost in losing weight? Yeah, exactly. You have to give up cheese and ice cream. That is the cost of losing weight. And really, that, that's what it boils down to. You have to start going to a gym and have to run and be sore and, and wake up early and give up time instead of sitting in front of a TV enjoying cheese and ice creams generally together. But the, uh, the, the, the thing is, is those are things we have to give up. And that's, that's a painful thing to look at. I remember when, when uh, Christy and I, we decided one uh, New Year's to give up chocolate for an entire year. And I, I, it was easier for me than it was for her, because I, you know, plain chocolate doesn't, the Snickers bar I'm okay with, some peanut M&M's, peanut, those little bits of chocolate. I don't have to eat big, big ones like that. But literally, we were confronted with the temptation to eat chocolate, what, was it about seven hours later? After we had said, hey, we're going to give this up, and we went to a party, it was like just this chocolate spread. And we're like, what? Does everything have chocolate in it? And that was kind of the mentality we went with. We also gave up Coke for one year. Same thing. And you know what the cost was in the, the Coke? Is that every time you went out to a restaurant, what else is there to drink? Water? Yeah, I know. Like, for real? Uh, and, and now I drink tea all the time, but at that point in time, I was like, no, tea is gross. You know, but now it's not. I've, I've come to acquire that taste. Uh, but the, the, the thing is, is we don't think about the cost. And even with that Coke thing, the cost was even more when we decided at the end of that year to celebrate together just to drink a whole bunch of Coke. Because when you are gone from Coke for a year and then you decide to enter that into your system again, it doesn't do well in this general area. And, and that was kind of where we were at. We, we forget to count the cost. Uh, spending more time in 
with family and friends. That's, that's the second highest resolution there is. You know what the cost is with that? Spending more time with family and friends. And, and, and we forget that. And we forget to count into the cost. That means we have to take time away from other things in order to do that. Getting out of debt. There's a cost involved in that. It means you have to be on a budget. You have to do these things. You have to say no to some things. And, and that's hard. And each one of these resolutions and just about anything else we do in our life has a cost. And, you know, it's funny. I, I, this today, the message is probably going to be the, definitely the hardest message so far I've done this year. But it will be the, it'll be the hardest message I may ever do. Um, chronologically, as, as we've gone through the Gospels, there's, there's something uh, for a while. I'll kind of hop back and forth by going uh, chronologically and just taking a passage and a passage and a passage, and you can't really skip through that. And then I'll flip over to, to topics, and topics are easy to say, I don't really want to talk about that, so we're just going to skip that. This is one I would like to skip. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you because it's Jesus talking about the cost of following him. And this is a hard message. It's a hard message for me to speak. It's a hard message for me to live out. And so even as I read this passage, there is some hotly debated stuff that takes place in this passage. You, you Google Luke chapter 14, by the way, that's where we're going to be at. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. And you will see all sorts of opinions. The title, if you have your Bible with you, the title of this passage is actually called The Cost of Discipleship. The cost of discipleship. And one of the big things that's debated in all of this is the fact that people say, God says, Ephesians says, that grace is free. Salvation is free. But there's a cost with discipleship. How can they go together? How is it possible to have something free and have to still pay for something? And that's a, that's a great question. And the thing that I want to let you know right here, right now, there's a good chance you're going to walk out of here with more questions than you do answers. As a matter of fact, a couple of people said that to me last night. Well, thanks a lot. Now I have to think about this all week long. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm not going to answer them next week either. Okay, so I'm just going to let you know that. It, it's just how it comes. As we see it, as God is working on us, where is he doing it? I had a guy come to me last week and say, man, it's, it's so amazing that you shared this with me because I've been thinking about changing my whole life direction and, and just giving myself over to God, but I have this battle. He goes, and money is my idol. I have no, no way of, of, of battling that. I know that's my idol, and if I had money, then I'm going to want big stuff, and I'm going to want to be able to show off that big stuff. And he goes, so I'm battling with this idea of money being my idol, and how do I give it all? And this message didn't help me. It, it, it forced me to say, he goes, I'm even thinking, and this is, this is what he told me. He goes, I am really had this real need for the homeless and the poor. And he goes, and I'm, I'm honestly thinking about selling everything I have, buying a used Subaru Outback, living out of the back of it, and traveling from city to city to help out at homeless shelters all around the United States. And I went, awesome? I mean, that is awesome. And at the same time, I, wow, that's huge. That's a huge decision, huge life thing. You know, stop in the junior year of college and, and go do that? Wow, what's your family going to think? Is God calling you to that? Is your family telling you not to? That's what this passage is really all about. And as we see it, and as we see it unfold, it's not easy. And like I said, it, it, it's a hard one. So if you have your, uh, your Bibles open to Luke chapter 14, I would love to read it from tr- starting in verse 25. If you don't have your Bibles, it's on the back of this note page, like I said, as well as up on the screen and on your version on your phone. So here we go. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now, 
great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 men? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Like I said, this, this passage, it brings up some heavy-duty stuff. And like I said, if I could have skipped it, I would have. I would have went to the happy ones. Okay, because this isn't the word hate coming from Jesus' mouth about hating your mom and hating your dad and hating your kids and hating your wife. Mm, that's just, that's a powerful word. How are we going to tackle this? How are we going to wrestle with this? Because this, like I said, brings up so many questions. So what I want to do today, because like I said, in these questions, I could probably influence you the way that I want to. That's one of the things about being able to speak in this area. I I can point you in the direction, but I'd rather not do that. I'd rather take what God has to say and let him point us in the direction. So let's just pray that that is what happens today, that it's not my words, but his that come out today. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, for us. To be an example for us, to teach us, to guide us, to direct us. And I pray that's exactly what happens this morning. That it's not my words, but it is yours. That it is not me speaking, but you. It is you in this place, you being glorified, you being lifted up through all of this. We pray it in your name. Amen. The first thing I want to ask is, can you imagine standing in that crowd? I mean, all kinds of questions came to your mind, but the first one that comes to my mind is a little bit easier to to, to just grab hold of for a second. Can you imagine standing in that crowd? You're standing there, and Jesus invites people to follow him. But he didn't turn and go, guys, I've got got four spiritual laws that I'd like for you to to hold on to. I'd like for you to open up your book, the book of Romans. If if you could open up the book of Romans for me, we're going to walk through the Romans road. And we're going we're gonna to talk about how to, to follow me. As a matter of fact, he didn't even say, if you guys want to follow me, I'd like for you to repeat a prayer after me right now. None of that happens. What does he do? He turns to a crowd, a crowd that is new, that is the best way to put it, maybe superficial, maybe there for just for the fun of it all. And he turns to the crowd and says, hey, if you want to continue to follow me, I want you to hate your mom. I want you to hate your dad. I want you to hate your kids. I want you to hate your wife. And on top of that, why don't you just throw yourself into that mix as well. By the way, go ahead and take up your cross. And after all that, give up everything. Is that, is that, is that appealing to anybody? I mean, first century people, they understand hate. 
They understand the true meaning of a cross, and they understand total loss. Does that sound appealing? Was Jesus trying to appeal to them in that sort of way? I'm, I'm sure the people in the crowd were like, who does this guy think he is? To say that we have to give up everything to follow him. I can't imagine how I would have responded being a first century person just following along, enjoying the show, and being challenged in that way. I mean, that is, that is pretty huge. And that's when I started thinking, were they ready to hear that message? And are we ready to hear that message? Are we mature enough to grasp hold of, of this very message? Because this is how Jesus introduced himself to people. This is what he says it means to follow him. This is the cost of discipleship. And it's scary to think about. It's scary in a way that, that this passage can be taken literally, or can we soften it? Is there a way to say that what Jesus has to say here isn't really what he meant to say? Is there a way to twist his words and take it in a different way? And there is, because I've heard it done before. But is that the right thing? See, because this goes in the face of questions I've been asked. I've been asked the question, well, can you be a believer and not a disciple? Can you make Jesus your Savior, but not your Lord? Is that possible? Because if salvation is free and discipleship costs, well, how do they go hand in hand? Because it almost sounds like they should be two separate, total different things. That you can be saved without having to be a disciple. But is that true? And that's what this passage really goes in the face of. And I want, like I said, to, to look at these questions from the point of Scripture. Verse 25, I think, is crucial for us to interpret everything that follows. And that's where it says, now great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds accompanied him. You know what that is? That is every pastor's dream. Great crowds. Every ministry wants a giant following. That's, that's what they want. Because we base everything on numbers. We base everything on how big it is. How big it looks to the outside. How many people can we fit in? How many? How many? How many? But that wasn't Jesus' deal. Jesus saw it differently because he knew the people that were following were, some of them were superficial. Some of them were just there for selfish reasons. He knew that. And I think he was calling them out because a lot of people who follow Jesus for, for selfish reasons and maybe even ask those questions, and I'm not saying for sure, but maybe ask those questions that I said, can you be saved without having to pay in the area of discipleship? When, when it comes to that, I think sometimes it's because we want to approach Jesus on our own terms. We want to say, well, we want this, even if Jesus doesn't fully offer that, so we're going to take some things and we're going to twist them around to make them fit into our, our mold versus into what Jesus says. Because Jesus has some terms, and a lot of times we say, well, forget Jesus' terms. Let's come to him on our own terms, on how we get to heaven. Because heaven sounds good. Discipleship doesn't sound quite as good having to do all the things that he's called us to do like give up everything that doesn't sound great that's not a sales technique that's not what we have on our, our board out here when it says come as you are give up everything go change the world that's not what it says but there is a change process that takes place that i think that that's where god is working on us but 
he kind of hits it right up front here about come to me on my terms. So I guess the question is, is what does Jesus require? What's he asking here? Can we break down this scripture to see what he's truly asking? The first thing I think he is asking is this. His first term is he wants superior love. He wants superior love. Look at Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is the first of three. If you don't, then you can't. This is the first of three. So what is he trying to say? I mean, that's a pretty good attention grabber. The word hate is a word that we really get on our kids about at the house. Don't use the word hate because that is a powerful, powerful word. But yet Jesus throws it out there and he's saying, hate them. Are we really supposed to hate our families? Am I really supposed to hate my wife and kids? Is that really what it comes down to? Because once again, I think we can get into this idea of of taking Jesus' words and soften them for us, for our benefit, to justify the way that we live. But is that really what he said? Did he say hate? What I'd like to do is I'd like to take some context of these original hearers and, and look at some different passages on the way that Jesus taught to help us answer that question. So if you have your Bible, flip back over to the left. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and it'll kind of help us shed some light, if you will, on Luke chapter 14. Matthew chapter 22 is a verse that we've talked about, or a passage that we've talked about a number of times. As a matter of fact, we used it for a theme a couple of years ago. And what he's saying, it's a conversation between him and an expert teacher in the law. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 36. It says this, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he says love your neighbor as yourself right here, but why did he say hate in Luke chapter 14? He says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the first and primary commandment that we see here is to love God with some of yourself right? Just a little bit, right? No, it says to love with all. If you were sitting there and you were eating a pie, you had just had it set down in front of you, and I said, you know what? You don't need that. I do. I would like to give, like you to give all of that to me. And you went, okay, and you cut it in half, you took out your half, and you gave it to me. Would that be giving all? Simple math lesson. No, it's not. It is not all, you only gave me half. When Jesus says, I want all, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, where should all of your love go? To God. All of your love should go to God. And you go, okay, but then how do we love our neighbor as ourselves? How do we do that? How does that happen? That's a great question. Hold on to it. Jump over to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look a little bit more at this Luke 14 from Matthew chapter 10. So keep going a little bit to the left. Starting in verse 37 of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Or anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. 
And that's really the truth of the matter. He's saying, if you love anything more than me, if you're not giving me all of your love, you're not worthy of me. So what is everything that is taking place here? What is the comparison that we see as we bring it back to Luke chapter 14? Without softening the word hate, because that is a hard, hard word, what is he saying? This is what I believe he's saying. I believe he's saying, because we're giving God our all, everything else in comparison is like hate. Because we're loving him with everything, everything else around is like hate. It doesn't matter if mom and dad say, I, I don't think so. And you're saying, no, God is calling me to do this. You know, how many times have you seen in, in a, a book about martyrs, in the voice of the martyrs, somebody who leaves the Muslim faith because they are called by Jesus and their family excommunicates them and puts a bounty out on their head? That's what this passage is talking about. You love God so much, you have to put them in the category of hate. You still love them, but not anywhere near comparing to how you love God. Because you love God with all. And as we love God with our all, we're being filled by him. And there's like, it's like almost like a reservoir filling up and overflowing. And as it overflows, it overflows to everybody else. And that's how we love our neighbor as ourselves, Because we have loved God with everything that we have. And what's the natural inclination for things to happen? Our life is going to display love for everybody else because we have such a love for God and he loves his people and it's just immediately going to happen that way. Our hearts are conquered by and captivated by the superior love, the superior affection for God. You know, it's funny because I, I, I know that I fall into this trap. But we have this tendency to think our love for God is... Well, I have to go to church. Well, I have to make sure my kids are in church. Well, I have to make sure I'm reading my Bible. I have to make sure that I'm praying. I have to, I have to. Christianity isn't about begrudging obedience. I guess the best way to display it is this, in human terms. Let's say that I come home from work, and Christy's standing in there at the door, and I just give her a big old kiss. And she kind of leans back and goes, hey, what, what was that for? And I said, well, here in page 56 of the marriage manual, it says that's what I have to do when I get home. That's not love. And, and, and we know that. We, we, we laugh in that way. And that, but that's what we do to God. Well, here in your Bible, it says that I, I have to. I have to. When we love him with everything, we say instead I have to, it's we get to. We want to. It's, it's a benefit. It's a privilege. It kind of changes everything. It really changes our perspective on it all, does it not? It changes our perspective on everything that we see. Everything that we do. How we act. How we act towards God. How we act towards others. If we're loving him supremely, there's no have-tos in it. Everything else just falls into place. So I guess the question that you have and you can walk away from just this first verse we've looked at in verse 26 of Luke 14 is, do you love Christ? Do you really want him? Do you really want to give your all? Because that is a lot. All, all is a lot. And the crazy thing is, it only gets worse in this passage. And I hate to use that word worse, but in our American Christianity, it gets worse of what he asks of us. Because the next thing he asks of us is this. 
Exclusive loyalty. Exclusive loyalty. Verse 27 says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We have a tendency, and I've heard it said a time or two before or more than that, people have this tendency to say, well, you know, I have, I have some burdens in my life. I have some, some things that I'm just working through. They are my cross to bear. That is not what Jesus is talking about. In case you were wondering, that has nothing to do with what he's talking about here. As a matter of fact, he's talking to a first century crew that have seen people while they're walking along the road hanging on a cross. They know what a cross is. They understand what a cross means. A cross means that you are going to be strapped with a giant beam across your back. You're going to be drugged through the streets and publicly humiliated. And your life, as you know it, is over. You are a dead man or a dead woman walking. So when he turns and says, pick up your cross and follow me, he's saying, no longer be loyal to yourself, but be loyal to me. Give up all that you have. You have to die to yourself. Everything is over for you. Your pride, dead. Honor, dead. Everything, dead. Your life is done. Through the cross of Christ, we die to the life that we live. Does that sound good for promotional ad that we send out in the mail next week? Hey, guys, come to church because through the cross of Christ, you die to everything that you live for. That's what Jesus did to this group of followers. How is it that we have missed this? Dead to your dreams, dead to your hopes, dead to your plans, dead to every idea of what you think is going to happen in your life. And instead, you turn to Christ and say, God, it's all yours. All yours. I've died to all these things. Now what? And he says, if you haven't done this, you can't be my disciple. That's why in the end of verse 26, he says, hate your mom, hate your dad, and even your own life. Even your own life. Galatians 2.20, Paul's writing says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So we no longer live. It's no longer our life to live. And like that first one, it, it changed our priorities. This one, I'm sorry, it changed our perspective. This one changes our priorities. It changes how we go about, how we focus in, what comes first in our lives. And that's, that's hard. You know, Christ becomes the one who determines it all. He's the one that determines whether or not we live in the back of an outback and drive from city to city. He's the one that determines where we live, not where we live. He determines the house that we live in, not the house, not our decision. He's the one that determines the kind of cars we drive. He's the one. He's the one that gets all that. He even determines what kind of clothes that we wear. He may say, I want you to give up this for this and for me. I want you to stop spending so much here and give to this. And we can say yes or no. But that decision should be based on the fact that we've already given him it all. If, if he's called to do it, th that is what we should do. I'm not sure how many of you guys like to shop at Goodwill. But it's not, not generally a high percentage of people that think that, that's, a, that's a, the, the top place that I want to shop at. I remember when I was a kid, my punishment, if I got bad grades, was my parents would buy me shoes 
at Kmart. That was my punishment. On Blue Light Special, you guys who are old enough understand the Blue Light Special? Yeah, yeah. That was my punishment. Because those shoes, if they got wet, they literally melted. So it, that, was, that was the way, it, thankfully it didn't rain very often in Phoenix, but th- that was the way that I was punished. H- how do we do that? How do, what do we set ourselves for to say that there are these tears? Now, if guess what God calls me to do? It closed over here, so God, I can't. I mean, that, that's the, that, that might be my excuse. But, you know, there's, there's those kind of things. We, we try and make excuses. We try and lessen and say, God, you can have this, but not so much this. It really should come down to the fact that Christ, because I've given my all, he determines my all. He determines everything. And that's a huge claim of authority. That's, that's a lot to give. And I think that's why Jesus follows it up with two illustrations found in verse 28 and verse 31 of this passage. The first illustration is, is we're workers constructing a building. Who doesn't think about the cost of constructing a building? How many of you guys drive down northern and see just past, uh, not Destiny Center anymore, I don't know what it's called, uh, Catalyst Church, that empty shell of a building? That, that was supposed to be a church. Perfect example. Who doesn't think about the cost before starting? John Stott, a Christian writer, he wrote this. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without pausing to reflect the cost of doing so. The result is a great scandal of Christendom today so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have been allowed, or they have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great, soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Isn't it sad that that's exactly what contemporary Christianity sounds like? Molding it to fit what we want and how we want it. You know how many other churches did not start out New Year's Day, the big hurrah moment, go get them, with, hey, it's going to cost you everything. Because... I, when I saw it and saw the way it all folded out, I went, oh, well, this is going to be fun. You know, I guess it only gets better from here, right? That's, that's the only way we can look at it. But as we see it, it, it is so much. Half-built towers. I didn't know that God really wanted everything. I didn't really think he wanted all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my service. I didn't think that's what he really wanted. Even though that's what he really said, I didn't think that was what he really meant. But that's how we justify things. The second illustration is warriors fighting in a battle. Who's going to fight a battle that they don't at least plan to win? And what is the rest of the New Testament about? It's about a spiritual battle that we are constantly in, that we're constantly fighting. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we did a video with the cruise ship versus battleship. I'm not sure if you remember that, but if that cruise ship was, it's all about me, and the battleship was all about the, guy, the commander-in-chief, the one that's driving us and taking us into battle. And which one are we on? 
Which one is the church? Which one are we headed to? It's a strong call to what is a Christian life really supposed to be like. It's a different way to look at Christianity and Jesus. As he says, consider the cost. Consider what it's going to take. Consider where it's going to go. And the funny thing is, is I, like I said before, it, it only takes the next level up. Because the next one is, in verse 33, is that Jesus requires total loss. Total loss. Look what it says in verse 33 after he comes off to the illustration. He says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up, what's that word? Everything. Kind of like that all thing. He cannot be my disciple. I would love, love, love to find a way to soften this verse. I would love to find a way to twist it to make it sound pretty and that you're going to get a whole lot out of the deal. But I can't. If you can, now's the time. Go ahead and feed me. I mean, it'd be great. I mean, in all reality, for the cause of Christ, Jesus says we give up everything we have. Give up everything that we have. It literally means say goodbye to, to relinquish, to abandon, or the ESV version that we read up front, to renounce. To renounce. We give up everything. If we want to follow Christ, then we give up everything we have. Not some things. Everything. And that, that is hard, a hard pill to swallow. You know why? Because I truly believe that Christ has full reign in my life in the areas where I want him to problem is there's areas where i don't want him to have full reign and he wants full reign over everything for our lives for our passions for our dreams for our families for our wife for our children for our mother for our father those are the things he mentioned up front but what about our house and what about our car what about our clothing what about our tvs what about our iphone what about what if he said that's mine because you know what as we've looked at over the last couple of weeks and we've kind of led into this and, you know, Jesus is talking about this doesn't seem to be by accident. When he talked just a couple of weeks ago and we saw that he talked about that guy that built the bigger barns because he had that extra haul and he was going to try and store it all and he says, hey, guess what? Your life's going to be taken from you. Then what? And we said, Christ owns everything. It's all his. We just get to use it. He just lends it to us. And when he says, it's mine to take back, guess what? It's his to take back. And we can fight him on it, or we can, we can go along with him because we understand who he is. Because we think it's our stuff, but it's not. And a lot of times we're worried about losing it because we think our stuff satisfies us. And I got to thinking this week, what if, what if, the world didn't look at the church and say, well, your stuff satisfies you and my stuff satisfies me, but you guys have to tack on God on the weekends and we get to play with our stuff on the weekends. So I'm going to choose my life over yours. What if they saw and said, man, that church, those Christians, they're not satisfied by their stuff. There's only one thing that truly satisfies them. And that is Jesus Christ. What if that's what they saw? What if that is what we brought to them? What if that would be the, the vision? How would neighborhoods respond? How would cities respond? Shouldn't Christianity say we don't want the stuff, that we want Christ? Shouldn't that really be what it is? And you might be asking the same question 
after reading this, that I asked, does, does God just want us to become monks and live in the hole in the cave and beat ourselves with boards? Is, is that what we're called to do here? Is that what this is all about? And I have to answer that with no. No, because what I think God wants is for us to be satisfied, but satisfied with eternal, not with temporal. To be making him the fundamental part of our life, not just the supplemental tack-on. To make him everything. Our men's Bible study, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and we got to chapter 11, excited about getting started back on Friday morning this week. And we're in chapter 11 now, and I want, I want to take a quick look at chapter 11, verse 24. And it talks about, it talks about Moses. And it, this passage is, is the great faith chapter, showing the, the faith of men and women of the Old Testament that have done some amazing things. But, but listen to what Moses did. Starting in verse 24 of chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Did you catch that? Moses said, I don't want the pleasures of Egypt. You know what pleasures that he had available to him that he chose not to go after because he didn't want to forsake Christ or disgrace Christ? He wanted to chase after Christ. He understood that there was a reward that was ahead. For Moses, it was a no-brainer. Why is it so hard for us to make the decision? Because when it really boils down to it, doesn't it make sense to say that we have reward that is greater than anything, anywhere? We have something we can chase after, and that is heaven. And heaven is Christ. It's the fullness of Christ. It's the glory of Christ. It's the enjoyment of Christ. And, and because we want that, we're willing to forsake everything else. We're willing to say, even to the point where I'm going to put this on a level of hate in comparison to the love that I have for Christ. But why? Isn't that a question we always ask? It's a question my kids always ask. Why? Why should I, why should I do that? Why should we put Christ first above all else? And the answer is, because that's where he belongs. Because he is supreme. He is supreme. Jesus is supremely loving. Why do we show superior love? To him, because he first loved us. Because he will love us and has loved us greater than anyone or anything ever. And so we return that love to him. Jesus was loyal and is loyal. He's supremely loyal. He will never leave us or forsake us. Our lives are grounded in his promises. And his promise is that we will see the great reward. We don't have to worry about giving to Jesus and dying to our plans because his plans are so much greater than mine. At what point in time did I think I was smarter than God? At what point in time did I say, you know what, God, I know that you've created everything and that you've got all this amazing ability and that you know everything, you see everything, you are everywhere. However, I, I'm pretty smart and I, I know. I know my life pretty well. When did that happen? When did that become okay? 
Jesus is supremely loving. He's supremely loyal. And Jesus sacrificed the supreme loss. Do you realize when he's talking to these people in Luke chapter 14, as he turns to that crowd, do you know where he was walking? Where he was heading? He was heading to Jerusalem. He was on his way there. We are now heading to Jerusalem and we'll end on April 5th, Easter. He was heading there. That's where we're heading. So when he turned to them, he knew exactly what was getting ready to take place in his life. Asking them to give all. Why? Because he first gave all. He first gave all. Jesus is our reward. He's our only satisfaction. Everything else is just temporary. Once again, you might be like me and say, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. I, I don't know if that's possible. And then as I thought through that, I, I thought through maybe it's a little bit better question. Why would we not want to do this? Why would we not want to do this? C.S. Lewis said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with dr- drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he goes on to say, we are far too easily pleased. And that's it. We're far too easily pleased. We're pleased with what we have. We think our houses and our cars and our stuff and our plans and our our good kids and, and all of these things, our sense of security and safety, they're good enough. But we're like kids making mud pies in the slums when so much more has been offered to us. I think that's why Hebrews 12 goes on to say, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Pursue him and want him and chase after him. Say, yes, we will be your disciples. Yes, we will follow. We shouldn't have to question if we can be saved without being a disciple. It should be our desire to be a disciple because Jesus did save us. And that's what we need to walk out of here with today. I told you there's going to be probably a good chance that you're going to walk out of here with more questions than you do answers. Because this is a heavy message. And as I wrote it out, I go, man, if there's anything you could do, God, to make me sick this weekend so somebody else has to speak, that would be awesome. Because this is, this is, this is heavy. And it's challenging. And it's powerful. And it's God's word being spoken to us. But the question is, is what are we going to do with it? That's the question I have for you. What are you going to do with it? And maybe you're just there. I don't know. Well, I'm going to step over into this room over here, and I would love to talk to you, to pray with you, to maybe kind of work through questions with you, because like I said, I, I might not have the answer. But God is working in us. He is working in me, he's working in you. That faith that he's giving us is changing us from the inside out so we can go and change the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that has given us the ability to connect with you in a way that we don't need an intermediate person there or intermediate thing, that we can just come to you on our face before you. And God, even in this time, we may be struggling with the words that that come from your word. 
And I pray, God, that, that you spoke your words and it was not mine. It wasn't me trying to influence anybody to do anything, but God, you working in the hearts and minds of your kids. Because God, you've been working on me. On how I approach you. On how I give you some and not all. But God, that's not what you've called for us. God, we don't want to have half-built towers. We want to see your glory go forth. God, we pray that today, even as we sing, even as we praise your name, even as we go out from here to do whatever it is we do today, God, that you be glorified and that we give it all to you. We pray in your name. Amen.